This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. The Center today is sponsoring a program entitled Governing America in the Age of Political Polarization. Our speaker is Dean Henry Brady, who has taught at Cal for more than 30 years. Dean Brady needs no introduction, um, and he was appointed dean of the Goldman School in 2009 and is director of the uh, Center for Stability and Democratic Engagement. Dean Brady's latest book uh, is, was published in May, The Unheavenly Chorus, Unequal Political Voice and the Broken Promise of American Democracy, with co-authors Kay Schlotzman and Sidney Verba. Now, please um, welcome Dean Brady. It's great to have so many people here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sort of surprised, actually. I figured at this early uh, hour, uh, very few people would show up. So it's, it's wonderful. I think that says something about the topic, which has many of us animated these days as we worry about political polarization. Uh, what I want to do is say a little bit about what is political polarization, what's happened in America in politics in the last 30 or 40 years. And then towards the end, I want to ta turn towards the fiscal cliff, uh, this problem that's going to occur basically right now, uh, but certainly in January, February, as a whole lot of uh, tax cuts that had been put into effect uh, will essentially end, and a process called sequestration might come into effect. And I want to talk about how polarization is going to interact with that and what the likely outcome will be. And as I go along, I'll say a little bit about what I think the outcomes of the election uh, might be. Okay, polarization in America. Uh, this is the picture I use in my own mind to think about polarization. Uh, it's an Alexander Calder gouache from about 1967. Calder, of course, is a great American, uh, gosh, sculptor, uh, artist. Uh, there's a wonderful Calder in front of the art museum uh, over on Bancroft. Uh, he did the great stabiles and mobiles and things like this. Uh, I love this one especially, although I, I have to admit, if you look at where the signature is, I turned it around a little bit using a program I found on the web. And I did that for a purpose, and it's this. If you think about on election night, they show you maps, and uh, the states that go Republican are red, and the states that go Democratic go blue. And, and by the way, when the uh, networks decided on this coding scheme, they had a debate over whether the Republicans should be red or the Democrats should be red. And they uh, agreed that the trouble with making the Democrats red is that would play to type. <laughs> In other words, the Democrats are red. Uh, for those of younger people who may not realize that there was a period in America where being red <laughs> meant that you were a communist. Uh, and so... Uh, in order not to seem to be partisan in any way, they made the uh, Democrats blue and the Republicans red. Um, 
I have colleagues, by the way, who when they do pictures resolutely, these are conservative colleagues, who resolutely refuse to use that convention and, and cast the Democrats as red and the Republicans as blue. Um, okay, so what's neat about this? Well, what's neat about it is, okay, there's the liberal Democrats over on the left, right, left to you. Uh, they're in blue. There's the Republicans, the big red spot uh, to the right. And what's between them? That great big dividing line. And so I think it's sort of a nice pictorial representation of polarization in America. Uh, and also it turns out that I'm going to show you some pictures in which I'm going to argue there's sort of two dimensions of argumentation of politics in America. Uh, one dimension is economics, and you can think of that as the horizontal dimension, and the parties differ on economics with uh, conservative views on the right, liberal views on the left. Uh, and they also just differ on social moral issues, uh, cultural issues. Uh, gay rights, abortion, and so forth. You can think of that as the vertical dimension. And you can see that they're nicely separated along both dimensions. And so this picture really does, Calder didn't know it, but he was a political scientist as well as a great artist, uh, I think captures polarization in America and gives us a sense of what it's all about. Um, and uh, so, so I really love this picture. Uh, let me give you a little more detail about this. This shows you on the bottom five socioeconomic quintiles, that is to say, groups of Americans split up into groups according to their income and their education. On the left are low-income and low-education people. On the right are high-education and high-income people. Five quintiles. We just break the population into five equal groups. So one, two, three, four, five. Then we look at the percentage of each party in each quintile. The thing you notice immediately is there's a lot higher percentage of Democrats in the lowest quintile than in the highest quintile. See the line, the blue line, it slopes down. Um, the second thing you'll notice is Republicans. There's a lot higher percentage of Republicans actually not than Democrats because there's actually more Democrats than Republicans in total in the population. But relatively speaking, there's more Republicans in the upper income quintiles than in the lower income quintiles. And you'll also notice that Republican line is much steeper than the Democratic line. What does that mean? That means the Republicans are a much more homogeneous party than the Democrats. That is to say, they're much more composed of their groups that are sort of their mainstay, like high income, high educated people. Democrats are more of a catch-all party. Uh, they have people of all income groups, although they tend towards the lower income groups. So that immediately tells you some things about American politics. The Republicans are more homogeneous. They're more representative of the higher SES groups, the, more, the higher socioeconomic status groups. Um, that means they can be more pure in their policies and can decide that they've got a position, it's a position their constituents like, and they're going to hold to it no matter what. No new taxes would be an example of that. Uh, Democrats are more of a catch-all party, certainly more representative than anything else of the lower-income quintiles, but nevertheless have a fair number of folks from the upper-income quintiles. And as a result, they have a harder time of being tough-minded about any particular position with respect to taxing and spending, although on balance they tend to be on the left. That is to say, uh, they believe that government spending is a good thing and the taxes are not necessarily the worst possible thing that could be imposed about people in a democratic political system. So that tells you something about the parties. Let me now just talk about what I think the two main issues of American politics are. 
And this is not to say there's not other issues. Uh, foreign policy, for example, is conspicuously missing from my list here. Why? Well, foreign policy is an episodic thing. It comes and goes. This presidential election, for example, is not really much about foreign policy. It's about other kinds of issues. 2004 was, to a large degree, about foreign policy. That was, remember, the Bush-Kerry election. And it was all about Iraq and Afghanistan and the wars we were in at the time. But that comes and goes. A third issue you might say is missing, or another issue that's missing, is race in American politics. Race, to a large extent, has become an issue that's highly correlated with income and economic issues. And so it's sort of captured by that right now. That didn't always be, uh, it didn't used to be so, it wasn't always so, but it is now. So these dimensions do a good job of capturing American politics. Um, and then, I'm pardon how messy this is, but I, I want to talk a little bit about what's happened to the parties and their activists over time, from about 1972 to the present, and I've updated these data in other places, but the pic uh, pictures aren't so pretty that I've created. So these are the ones I'm going to use. They take you to 2004, but it's continued to be this way. What this picture does is it says, over time, that's the horizontal axis, what's happened to the average Republican versus the average Democrat in terms of their positions on economic issues, where the vertical axis is those positions. So do you have a liberal position on economic issues? or a conservative position. Well, on average, not surprisingly, it turns out Democrats have a pretty liberal position. And so they're towards the bottom there, all three lines. There's three lines because in a minute I'll break it out into just not the average Democrat or Republican, but into the activists in the parties, the people who give money, the people who give time to parties by being campaign workers. Um, so the average Democrat is pretty liberal, on economic issues. This is a set of questions that are asked repeatedly in what are called national election studies over time. So we can track over time where people stand on these issues and they're about economics and they can be scored liberal conservative. And not surprisingly, Republicans are towards the top, they're more conservative. But what's really interesting here is this is the difference, these bars show you the difference between the two parties in 1972 and the difference in 2004 for just the average Democrat versus the average Republican. And what you notice is those wedges between the parties have gotten bigger. There's more polarization between the parties. Uh, I gave this talk, by the way, at the University of Florida, and I started making this motion and saying, see what's happening in these lines? They're going like this. <laughs> and at the University of Florida, I got this great reaction from the crowd. They loved it. They go, yeah, yeah. Go Gators, they kept yelling. And I, I had no idea what they were doing. It turns out that at the University of Florida, that's the Gator. That's what you do. You're a Gator. So uh, what's happened is we've gotten in the grips of the Gators, I guess, in American politics. Um, so that's true of the rank and file. We've had more polarization. Now, it's really important to understand what this polarization is. It's actually not the case that people in America in general have become more polarized. And you might say, well, how can that be so? Well, what's really happened is we've had a sorting of people into the parties according to their ideologies. So whereas it used to be the case that there were Democrats who were moderates or conservatives even, often Southern Democrats, but not entirely, and there were Republicans who were moderate or even liberal, 
northeastern uh, United States, a Jacob Jaffetz, N Nelson Rockefeller kind of Republican, and the rank and file like that, those folks now are pretty much gone. And what you've got is two parties which are much more homogeneous ideologically than they used to be. So what's really happened is not so much a polarization of Americans, but a polarization of the political parties as people have sorted into party according to their ideology. Furthermore, as I'll show you later during this same time, what's happened is the number of independents has increased. So that's another way in which the parties have become more homogeneous because those people in the center of the spectrum have left the parties, leaving just the hardcore, so the parties increasingly look more and more polarized. So that's true with respect to the rank and file, the people in the mass public who when we ask them on a survey, are you Republican or Democrat, this shows you what's happened to them. But there's also the activists. And what's interesting is that the other lines here show you what's happened to activists who are people who give money to political parties or give time to political parties as campaign workers. And this is what's happened to them. And so let's just go back and forth. Not surprisingly, to begin with, they were more polarized, more separated. But what's really amazing is look how separated, just go back again. Oops. There's what it used, that's what it is for the rank and file. Here's what it is for the activists. The activists are really polarized. Really polarized. So that means the folks who are most involved in the parties are really, really much more extreme with respect to one another in the two parties uh, than uh, just the rank and file. Now, there's another dimension of American politics. This is a series of questions that asks about social moral issues over time. Uh, these are things like abortion and women's role, uh, whether women should be out in the workforce. And what's interesting about that question is uh, Americans in general have become more liberal on that question, uh, but also there's been a tremendous sorting within the parties on that. Also a tremendous sorting with respect to the question of abortion. It turns out that in 1972 or so, this is before, just before Roe versus Wade, the famous Supreme Court decision, which basically decided how we deal with the question of abortion in America. Um, it's just before that decision. And at that time, the two parties were pretty indistinguishable on the abortion question. There really wasn't much difference. And in fact, Democrats were probably a little more conservative than the Republicans, believe it or not. So if you look, early on, there was very little difference between the two parties. And indeed, if anything, the Democrats were more conservative than the Republicans. And now, look, there's a bigger wedge. But this wedge is not as surprising or maybe worrisome as this wedge, which shows you the activists. So the party activists are much more polarized over time. So the gator's mouth is much more open. Uh, and there's a real difference between the two parties on the social moral issues. So we've shown there's differences on the economic issues, there's differences on the social moral issues, activists especially being polarized. Okay, let me show you another way to think of all this. Uh, this is uh, work where we looked at different kinds of people, um, folks who were just citizens, people who voted or were registered to vote, people who were campaign workers, campaign givers, amount of campaign giving, and so forth. And, and this is a very busy picture for which I apologize. I didn't have time to clean it up. But um, what it shows you is the box in the middle 
well, let me just explain the axes first. Each axis is a dimension of American politics. Think of the Calder picture again. So along the bottom are quest is a question about redistribution of income. Should the government redistribute income? Liberal positions are on the left. Conservative positions are on the right. And by the way, the numbers don't mean very much because we've just scored these questions in a pretty arbitrary way. But the ordering does mean something. On the vertical dimension, there's a bunch of social issues which include questions about abortion and gay rights. And this is from a 2008 study that was done in the United States. And we look at where the average Democrat stands and the average Republican and so forth. And basically what you see is, let's start with the average citizen. That's the box up there. Citizens and voters are in the, near the middle of the picture. So, and I've constructed it really basically that way so they would be at the middle. Then over down on the left are Democrats. Um, and you can see the... the sort of light blue uh, oblong, is different definitions of Democrats that we have. Are they people who are Democratic voters? Are they people who, when asked a question, are you a Democrat or Republican or what, they immediately say Democrat? Uh, or are they somebody who, when we look, push a little more and say, well, do you lean Democratic? They say, yeah, I lean Democratic. And that's a more inclusive defi definition. But the point is, no matter where you put them, they're down there to the left. Same thing with Republicans up there on the right, that circular kind of light red circle. Then we've got activists in each party, and that's people who are Democratic workers, people who work for political campaigns, are Democratic dollar givers. That's the lowest left hand, very solid, uh, thicker blue oblong. Uh, and they're more extreme, as I just showed you a moment ago, and you shouldn't be surprised that they are. Notice they're more extreme, actually, on the social issues, not so much more extreme on the economic issues. For the Republicans, it turns out, their activists are much more extreme on the economic issues. And by the way, this is the Tea Party. The Tea Party is even further to the right. Uh, and by the way, Occupy is down there to the left. Um, so uh, I've done this with 2012 data, uh, which I can't release yet because of an embargo because of the group that I worked with. Uh, but we're, we're working on getting a report done. But uh, I can say that Occupy and Tea Party are way far even further to the left and down there, and Tea Party way out there to the right. And also, if you look at this picture for a while, and if you look at lots of other data, including the 2012 data I just described, one thing you'll find that repeats and repeats and repeats is the Republicans are further away from the average citizen than Democrats are. So it's Republicans who have become more polarized than the Democrats. That's not to say the Democrats haven't become somewhat polarized during this period, but the Republicans have become really polarized. And the Tea Party is especially far. And the Tea Party in the sample for 2012 was uh, people who said they identified with the Tea Party was about 17% of the American population. The people who said they identified with Occupy and thought it was a good movement were 13%. So that means 30% of the American population set those more extreme positions. That's a lot of folks. I'm actually beginning to worry that, in fact, we're not only seeing sorting, we may actually be seeing actual polarization in the population. I don't have the evidence to quite show that, to show that or prove it, uh, but uh, we, uh, th there's indications it might be true. Okay, so polarized politics, polarized along these two dimensions, and Republicans more 
extreme than Democrats. That's not surprising, by the way, given what I showed you before about the Republicans being the more homogeneous party. Okay, so this summarizes what I just said. Two dimensions of polarization increased dramatically, especially among activists. Okay, let's now turn to elites, the people who are in Congress. Um, there's work that's been done to look at roll call votes over time, and we've looked to see uh, how can we score these liberal conservative, and with some very sophisticated statistical methods, we can do this kind of thing, and then we can get scores over time. Uh, and so we can look at particular Congresses, or we can look over time. Right now, let's just look at the 2007 data uh, for the 110th Congress. And what this shows you is liberal conservative along a horizontal axis. So liberals on the left, conservatives on the right. Oh, and by the way, this is from one of my colleagues uh, who believes ardently uh, that uh, Democrats should always be put in red. Uh, he used to have a chair at the University of Houston, which was, um, who was the guy who was head of Enron? I'm trying to think of his name. Ken Lay. He had the Ken Lay chair at the University of Houston. He, he had the Ken Lay chair. So when you look at these data, these are not data from a liberal academic. These are data from a, a person who, who styles himself pretty conservative and had the Ken Lay chair at the University of Houston. Uh, and what he shows is there's no question but that both parties um, are bunched. So what you can think of these curves as meaning is how many Democrats in Congress are at each of those positions. So we've sort of laid them on top of one another and seen what kind of figure they'll make, and they make these sort of Gaussian or, or normal-shaped curves. Um, and what we've got there is red is the House Democrats, dark red is the uh, Senate Democrats, And then on the right, we've got the Republicans. And so you can see both chambers basically have the same distribution in terms of liberal conservatism of the Democrats and Republicans. So that shows you, first of all, notice there's basically no overlap between those distributions. Uh, there's just a little bit there, a few people. But in fact, the truth is the most liberal Republican is more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. And so, in fact, there's virtually no overlap between the two parties. And has it always been so? Well, using the methods I've described, we can do that. And what we find is in 1967-68, the distributions looked like the top panel there. Notice there's a lot of overlap between the two parties. Uh, notice that as we move along, the overlap is reduced. And until we get to 2007-2008, there's essentially no overlap. So these curves are moving apart. So it used to be, so everybody see the overlap where the, the blue line and the red line cross at the top? There's a lot of space under there. That's a lot of people who basically turn out to be in the middle. Now we go down to the bottom, there's virtually nobody where the curves cross. So there's virtually nobody who's in the middle anymore. We've got extremes. And here I just do the same picture and sort of show you where Clinton uh, and Obama would be located on this curve, where McCain would be located. Notice what this means, by the way, is John McCain in 67, 68 would have been a conservative in the Republican Party. He's to the right of the mode of that 
distribution. He's sort of to the right of that curve. But notice that by 2007, 2008, he's on the left of his party. And George Bush is on the right of his party, but would have been on the extreme right in 1967-68. So the Republican Party has really changed its move to the right. And indeed, recently there's a book that was published by Norm Ornstein, who works at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank, and Tom Mann, who works at the Brookings Institution, uh, which is more of a liberal think tank. And for years they'd been complaining and writing about polarization in Congress, and doing a sort of even-handed approach to it. Well, you know, both sides are getting more polarized. It's really not good. It's, it's, it's both sides are, are sort of uh, causing the trouble. But then they decided that's wrong. It's actually the Republicans that are the problem. So Norm Ornstein at the American Enterprise Institute, needless to say, has gotten into a lot of trouble with his compatriots there who are not happy by this characterization. But they finally came to the conclusion including Norm, that basically it's the Republicans who have moved further away from the center than the Democrats have moved away from the center. And this is, it's even worse than it looks, is the title of the, the little book they've done. It's very nice. Um, so it's been controversial, but I must say the data support the conclusion that they come to. Uh, and many of us have been saying this, that it's really uh, the Republicans who have moved further to the right than the Democrats to the left. Okay. And so what we can do, by the way, is plot polarization over time. These are just sort of indices of polarization. One way to think about it is sort of the distance between the two parties over time. How has that increased? And you can see that's increased over time. And it used to be that they were not that far apart. And we have the House and the Senate on this. So the House is the darker line. The Senate is the lighter line. So in the 40s, in that era, uh, they weren't that far apart. But now, starting in the 70s, polarization just takes off. And so the distance between the parties increases dramatically uh, in the last 30, 40 years. And that's completely consistent with the data I showed you earlier for the mass public. Well, what is the, one of the consequences or maybe causes of this? It's hard to know which. It's probably both. One of the causes of it, one of the consequences of it, is that filibuster has been used more and more in the Senate of the United States. Uh, cloture voting is an attempt to try to stop the filibuster. So there's three things that can happen with the cloture. You can uh, just file a motion. It's the first step you take. That indicates there's been a filibuster and somebody wants to stop it. Uh, then there can be a vote, ultimately, on cloture. Uh, that's the second step. And the third step is it can actually be invoked. And all three of these steps have increased dramatically in the last 40, 50 years. So what these three lines are is those three steps, the number of times they occurred in each Congress going back to the 40s. And you can see it was hardly used at all early on, and now it's just taken off. And by the way, notice the Democrats are pretty much as guilty as the Republicans of using this mechanism. So cloture has been, uh, motions have been filed with increasing dramatic frequency. This is the absolute number. So notice we've gone from something like 5 or 10 to something like 100 closure motions filed. And so a ratio of 10 to 1. So a lot more fractiousness uh, and disagreement within the Senate of the United States. Okay, so elites are polarized. 
Polarization has increased and Republicans have moved further to the right than the Democrats. So that's the polarization story. It's been exacerbated, I think, many others think, by money in American politics. Uh, to give you an idea about money in politics, this is my favorite social science finding uh, that I'm partly responsible for in a book that I wrote with two other authors, Sid Verbin and Keish Lossman. And we found, remarkably, that the people with money give money. <laughs> Takes a social scientist to come up with that remarkable result. Uh, I must say that when I became dean, the development officers in my school took me aside and said, Henry, the people with money give money. So they knew it. Uh, <laughs> what you notice here, though, and what's really remarkable is here what we've got is, again, that SES percentile. So on the left are the poor and uneducated. On the right are the educated and well-off. And these are percentiles. And what we've got is... Of those percentiles, what fraction give money? This is just whether they give money, by the way, not how much they give. And what you notice, that goes along, and not surprisingly, it increases, but it really increases dramatically as you get to the higher percentiles. And indeed, these data are incomplete because it's almost impossible on sample surveys for us to get at the really highest income people. We get very few high income people. But there's indications that there's an exceptionally small number of people, maybe 400 people, who give a third of all the money that's given in politics in America. Okay? And this doesn't capture that. Um, first of all, really all it's saying is whether you give money, not how much you give. So if we added on top of this, well, how much you give, that would even go up steeper because it turns out, again, big surprise, people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale they may contribute, but they don't contribute that much, whereas people at the upper end of the socioeconomic scale both contribute at very high rates, 30%, 40%, and give enormous sums of money. By the way, it's interesting to compare this with the percentage who work for campaigns, uh, which is the blue line there. And that also goes up, but you notice that doesn't go up at such a steep rate. And what we've done in American politics with a lot of the judicial decisions we've come to, is we've moved politics uh, towards increasingly money-based and not campaign worker-based. Campaign workers are still important, but basically campaigns really hunger for money. That's what they want, because you can convert that into a lot of other things. And because we've made it easier and easier for the well-off to give money to politics, it's really just flooded into the system and now become a really, really important part of American politics. And since the people who give money are folks at the higher levels of SES, guess what? They have more influence on American politics. Not a big surprise. Um, and indeed, this shows you something from the book we just published. What we did is we went and looked at lobbyists in Washington. Who did they represent? And we looked at the kinds of things groups in Washington did and what fraction of businesses, for example, were there, and what fractions of other kinds of groups. And we, these pictures are really meant to focus on two things. Business groups, which are the big white spaces, versus the less privileged. And the less privileged, if you look at the top one there, you may not be able to read it, it's so small. There's just a little sliver of groups that represent the less privileged. And by the way, by less privileged, we don't mean just poor people. We mean working class people. So we're talking about unions 
who actually have lobbying organizations in Washington. We're talking about groups that represent blue-collar workers or even white-collar workers who are not professionals or managers. The fact is, the less, and we're calling those the less privileged. That's a big group. It's a large fraction of Americans. Those folks are much less represented in Washington in terms of organizations. They're much less represented in terms of what we call in-house lobbyists. Those are people hired by these groups to work in-house. Uh, or firms that they hire. A lot of what lobbying occurs by hiring an outside firm. They're much less represented in terms of lobbying expenditures. We went and got data on how much money each of these lobbyists spends. They have to file reports, and we redacted that data. It is true that congressional testimony is a little bit more uh, favorable towards the less privileged. There's just a slightly bigger slice there. Uh, but by and large, it's business groups which have a lot more representation. The one place, by the way, where less privileged actually have a fair amount of skin in the game is with respect to uh, PAC donations down there. You can see this is for the less privileged. And often the debate centers on political action committee donations. And people say, well, unions give lots of money. It's not that much less than businesses. Therefore, what's the problem here? And what they completely neglect is there's this whole other realm, which is lobbying and testifying before Congress and things like that, where businesses do quite, quite well and the less privileged don't do so well. So, and even, by the way, in terms of PAC donations, it's not like the less privileged are actually very competitive with businesses. So, in fact, I forgot that I'd done this. You can see, it tells you. Uh, so business groups are majority of all organizations. They have majority of in-house lobbyists, super majority of outside lobbyists, spend super majority of lobbying dollars, do plurality of congressional testimony, submit small fraction of amicus briefs. By the way, the courts are one place where there's a little more equitable distribution of who gets represented. And then they spend a plurality of PAC dollars. Okay, uh, I'm going to skip this. Um, this is just a cartoon we have in our new book. Um, there's a lot of folks who say, well, but it's a level playing field. Anybody can give money. <laughs> and this cartoon, we thought, sort of captured what's going on. Um, it's the lion saying to the rabbit, what are you complaining about? It's a level playing field. Okay, let me now turn to the fiscal cliff, because polarization in America is making it hard for us to deal with a really fundamental problem that we have. And I'm not going to go through this whole thing. But let me just tell you briefly what this is. What I've done is I've gone and gotten uh, information uh, from uh, the Tax Policy Center, which, by the way, has figured in some of the in the uh, presidential debate the other day. That's the center that Obama cited that had done the study, which suggested that Mitt Romney's tax plan uh, really wasn't feasible uh, because if he intends to do all the things he says he's going to do, and the big thing he says he's going to do is uh, try to uh, not harm middle-class taxpayers uh, while he keeps taxes on the rich lower. And he says he can do this by changing deductions. And this report said, well, the trouble is there's not enough deductions that you can take away from rich taxpayers to make up the difference and not increase tax rates 
for middle class and lower class people. Uh, and therefore, it's got to be the case that you're going to take away deductions that are going to hurt middle class and lower class people. And the Tax Policy Center is a pretty reputable group, Urban Institute, Brookings Institution. Um, and certainly, they tried very hard to figure out what is Mitt Romney's tax plan. Uh, and of course, he keeps claiming, well, but they're not going to do what I'm going to do. But the sad thing is he hasn't told us what he's going to do. We don't know. And it sort of you have to imagine what he's going to do. And they tried to do the best job of imagining. And they came to the conclusion that, in fact, he couldn't do what he said he was going to do. Now, maybe there's a way, but it's not a way that a bunch of really, really talented tax experts can figure out. And they tried very hard to do it. So this is a report from them. And they're, they're a very responsible source of information. And what I've got here is... What is the fiscal cliff? And the fiscal cliff is basically the fact that we've got a whole lot of stuff that was put in place along the way that's coming due in January, February. That is to say, a whole lot of tax cuts are going to be eliminated. And as a result of the elimination of those tax cuts, taxes will go up in a whole variety of areas. And I've listed a whole bunch of them with the amount of money that's involved. And I'm not going to go through each one, but it's things like Eliminate the temporary 2% payroll tax deduction uh, created by both parties. So what I've done in this thing is I've told you what the uh, program is that's going to be eliminated in terms of the tax cuts. And then I've told you which parties were responsible for that in the first place. And then I've gone to the, uh, along and told you how much money it involves. And then I said, who is mostly affected? Because what you can do is look at the incidence of these taxes and ask, who is it that's going to really care about this? So, for example, payroll taxes fall more heavily because of the fact that they're just a proportional tax on low- and middle-income taxpayers. So the elimination of the 2% pushback or, or rollback of payroll taxes is going to really hurt middle and low income people. And I've also in the final column told you which parties don't want to do these things. Now it turns out on that one, both parties thought of that payroll rollback as just a temporary thing. They're worried in the long run about paying for social security, so they're not sure they want to continue to do that. So maybe both parties can agree that we shouldn't continue to do that, but it does mean there will be more taxes on people, especially hitting middle and low income people. Uh, and then just to take one more, uh, there's the return to higher income tax rates and fewer personal exemptions and itemized deductions uh, for groups. And then that's the Bush era. And those are the, uh, some of the things that Obama's talking about that he wants to continue, uh, or, or that is to say, not get rid of. It's a little confusing here because the trouble is in January, things go away. The, the deductions and the exemptions and the cutbacks and taxes that people have are going away. And so Obama is saying, uh, let's let them go away. Let's have the rich pay more taxes. Um, so what we find here is on this first page, this first bit, which is the top of the page I've given you, there's $535 billion in more new taxes, some of them tax cutbacks that are just going away, uh, that are going to be instituted in January, February. That's yes. Yes going to get to that in a moment. That's per year. And indeed, then if you go to the bottom, there's a bunch of new taxes. Obamacare, for example, will require a new tax uh, that will be something like uh, $20 billion. And then 
which is small, by the way, compared to a lot of the other things we're talking about here. And then there's a few little technical things I'm not going to get into. And finally, there's this notion called sequestration uh, because of concern about the long-term debt and the budget deficit, which is the yearly difference between our revenues and our expenditures. In 2011, you remember the big fight over what we were going to do about increasing the debt limit. That led to an agreement between the two parties that, in fact, uh, they would try to find a way to solve the debt problem, the deficit problem. Uh, But there was a committee set up, couldn't come to any conclusion. And as a result, we have an automatic set of cuts that are going to occur. That's called sequestration. And basically, it is it's automatic across-the-board cuts across federal agencies. And that's about $100 billion, $95 billion. If you put all this together, that's $675 billion of new taxes or getting rid of expenditures. Now, why do I put those together? Well, both of those things are stimulative. Cutting taxes stimulates the economy. Spending money stimulates the economy. So what we're going to get rid of in January, February, if we're not careful, is about $675 billion in stimulus every year. Now, you may remember there was an enormous fight at the beginning of the Obama administration on a stimulus bill that was about $800 billion. So basically, we're talking about destimulating the economy by $675 billion, but not just once, continuously. And the experts in this area and this includes groups like uh, this includes group by like the Congressional Budget Office, Moody's Analytics, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. They all say this could lead to a decrease in GNP of four to five percent decrease. That's a recession. So there's a big worry about doing this. By the way, there is an oddity in the fact that the Republicans are really worried about this recession occurring with a six hundred and seventy-five billion dollar decrease in government um, stimulus, but their claim is the $800 billion didn't really have any impact. You can't have both. I mean, you can claim the $800 billion has no impact, but then you should claim this will have no impact as well. You can't have both. Uh, I think most economists, almost all economists, will tell you it's going to have an impact. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Uh, something has to. Uh, we can't really be doing this. But, but note that's a really difficult problem because it turns out, by the way, that if we did let these tax cuts expire, if we did have sequestration and great cuts in the budgets, uh, we could, in fact, help solve our deficit problem very quickly. Within a few years, we would have gotten rid of most of our deficit. So that's one path to getting rid of the deficit, but it's the European path. It's the one that's been tried in places like Britain, which have been massive reductions in government expenditures, and the result has been destimulation of the economy and lack of growth. So we've been growing much faster than the European countries, right? Not great. Growth is not great right now, but it's been better than Europe right now in America. Uh, So there's a tough problem here. What do we do? Do we worry about the long-term deficit problem, or do we worry about the short-term stimulus problem? And furthermore, then, I show you on this in the last column, there's differences of opinions about which things should be done or not done. And, of course, one of the big issues in this campaign is Obama says, let the tax cuts for the rich expire because that will help us get revenues that can solve our deficit problem. Yes, it will have some 
destimulating effect. It certainly will hurt a little bit. But that's better, he says, than taking the money out of middle and low income hands because his argument is, and the argument of many economists, is those folks are much more likely to spend the money and not just to save the money, which means that it doesn't really help stimulate the economy. And if you want a short-run stimulus, the argument goes, you want to keep money in the hands of middle and lower income people, not just give it to high income people. The Republicans say, no, that's not fair. Uh, They should have uh, their tax cuts continued. And furthermore, they're the job creators and they're the folks who are going to help stimulate the economy. That argument might work better if we didn't have billions of dollars in profits uh, in the coffers of corporations right now that are not being used to expand economic output. Uh, But there's obviously arguments among economists about these kinds of things. There are some economists who think that Romney's right, some who think that Obama's right on this issue. But notice where polarization takes you. If you go down my chart, a lot of this difference in the parties has to do with which groups are affected. Is it low-income groups and middle-income groups, or is it high-income groups? And you'll see that Republicans want things that will make sure their constituency, high-income groups, are protected. Democrats want things that make sure that their constituencies, middle- and lower-income groups, are protected. So the battle is going to be over which groups are protected And furthermore, it's going to be over whether we have taxes to try to help solve some of the long-term budget deficit problems uh, or not. Obama says taxes in a balanced way are not a bad idea. Uh, Republicans say no. And in fact, you may remember the famous scene in the primaries where they were asked, a group of them including Mitt Romney, if you were asked to have $1 in taxes for $10 in spending cuts, would you take that deal? So that means mostly spending cuts, a little bit of tax increase. Every member on the stage of the Republican primary contenders, including Mitt Romney, said no, they wouldn't take that deal. They would would say absolutely no new taxes under any conditions. So that's where we are. We've got a polarized situation, and we've got deep differences of opinion about how to solve our problems. Now let me just speak briefly about the outcome. I think it's most likely Obama will win, although his debate performance the other day was not good. It was really poor. I actually went into my class the next day, and I I went and I said, look at what he said here. He had some setup for a really good rejoinder to Romney, and then he got lost. And time again, he got lost in that debate. Romney was exceptionally good. Uh, He stayed on message. He said the same thing again and again and again, which is the right thing to do probably in a debate like that. And uh, he did not say much about the details of what he would do. It's basically a Richard Nixon, I have a plan to end the war in Vietnam kind of strategy. It's a strategy a challenger can use because the challenger doesn't have to give details. And Obama did not draw him out on those details. So I think it's most likely you'll get Obama winning, although, as I say, the debate makes that problematic. I'd say there's about a 60% chance, 67% chance, actually, I'd go up to, uh, that Obama will win the presidency, the Senate will remain Democratic, and the House will remain Republican. I think it's highly unlikely the House will change from Republican to Democrat. I think it's somewhat possible that the Senate could change from Democrat to Republican, although not with a 60-vote margin for the Republicans, so they would have to deal with the filibuster. 
Um, and I think it's possible that Mitt Romney could win. Uh, I'd give him about a 20 to 30% chance right now. Uh, it's going to depend, I think, partly on what happens in the next few debates. Uh, the job numbers yesterday were good for Obama. Uh, they weren't great. They were good. Uh, the people in the White House are probably frustrated over the fact that there were revisions in some of the numbers for the preceding two months that upped them by 40,000 jobs for each month. Uh, and that, unfortunately, what re people will remember was the low job numbers when they were first announced and not recognize that they were actually changed. 115, 14, whatever the number was, it was 14, 18, something like that, 114,000, let's say, jobs yesterday. That's not a great number, but it's better than what he had been getting. Um, and in their better thing, of course, was the unemployment rate going down to 7.8%. That's good for Obama. Uh, that will allow him to get by the rhetorical statement the Republicans have been using, which is unemployment is still over 8% and has not declined. He can say it's declined. They rightfully point out that a lot of that decline is due to the fact that people are so discouraged from working, they're not even trying anymore. So that 7.8% 7.8% is among people who are still trying, and a lot of people have been discouraged. So both sides have arguments on those numbers. I'd say on balance, that was a good day for Obama, especially given the debate performance that he had the other night. Uh, but he needs to do better in the other debates if he's going to win, uh, and that remains to be seen. So with that, let me end and take questions. Thank you. Yes? Is there any data on the stimulative oh. effects for uh, you know, rich people, Yes, I mean, there are studies which show that basically the stimulative effects are greater for middle and lower income people than for high income people. That's a don't confuse me with the facts type situation. Uh, you know, I, I wish I had an economist of another stripe here to sort of put arguments uh, on the other side, uh, but I think most economists would say that the stimulative effect is much greater for middle and low income people than it is for high income people because they go tend to save the money. They would also say that, in fact, the initial Obama stimulus to please the Republicans had a much bigger tax cut than had initially been uh, thought of. And that was not really probably the right way to go because that gave a lot of money to folks who promptly turned around and saved it when you wanted them to go and spend it. So I'd say, yes, on balance, there's a lot of evidence to show that the stimulative effects are mostly for lower and middle income people. Yes, back there. A good case can be made, particularly in California, that the unionization of government employees has led to a lot of polarization and dysfunction, and you didn't touch on that at all. Can you repeat the question? Uh, the question is whether the unionization of government workers has led to polarization and dysfunction. And there's no question but the unions have certainly represented workers quite diligently. The data I showed you, I think, suggests that the notion, however, that unions are these all-powerful entities and that poor business quakes in front of them, it's just not true. So that, well, but I'm talking about government. I'm talking about uh, lobbying and, and who has lots of lobbyists. Uh, certainly we have problems with pensions in the state of California, a problem we've got to fix. Uh, no responsible person, it seems to me, would look at the numbers and say we don't have to find a way to deal with that. However, I think it is important to remember that we've stripped people in the private sector of defined benefits pensions. And so now 
you have to rely upon your own investment strategy and hope you're lucky. And if you're not lucky, you're going to be in trouble in retirement. Uh, do we really want to do that to the public sector as well? Uh, we might. I mean, that's certainly one way to approach it and say, you know, everybody should be on a level playing field and, and everybody should be screwed, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, on that topic. But, you know, there's another way we could go is we could say what we really need to do is to buy pensions in America that make sure there's a floor for people and that we, a hybrid system might make some sense, where we have uh, defined benefits to a certain level, but above that uh, you have to put in your own money and that, that uh, is going to be based more on defined contributions. And it seems to me a hybrid me method would be one that would be better for the people of America uh, than just saying, let's just get rid of uh, any kind of defined benefits programs. It's my personal taste. But we do have a problem. There's no question about that. By the way, the problem is, to a large extent, in the protective services, it's the corrections officers, it's police, it's fire, who have gotten extraordinarily good deals and who have options to retire at 50, get disability, spike their incomes, that is to say, get higher incomes the last year, and therefore end up with extremely lucrative retirement benefits. Teachers also have a problem, but it's they put in bigger contributions than the protective services by and large, especially in California, and they don't typically retire at 50, and furthermore, they can't spike their income the last year the way those other folks can. So you really have to differentiate among different groups. Yeah. Question, Dr. Brady. On several occasions, you grouped uh, low income, less educated, higher income, better educated. Is there any weight factor between education and income within those groups? You're basically... Uh, is, uh, uh, he, he was saying that uh, I talk about socioeconomic status where we put together high and low income, uh, I'm sorry, high education and, and high income people. What we do is we just basically count them equally. You can do the analyses separately, by the way, and we have done them, and you get the same kinds of results. So you can do them just by education or just by income, and you get essentially the same results. They're somewhat different, but not so much that it's really worth the trouble, which is why we put them together. Way in the back there. You mentioned the vote to raise the debt ceiling. Do you think there's any um, danger we're going to see a repeat of the last time? Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, I, I suspect Congress will get into big fights. They're going to kick it down the uh, road as much as they can, and we're not going to really solve the problem, and we're going to be in... Uh, Really unhappy circumstances, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. <laughs> Way in the back, yes. Have you done a, a study on uh, aging, uh, how people vote when they're younger versus how they vote as they get older? People tend to become somewhat more conservative as they get older. Uh, but there's also the fact there's cohort effects, that is to say, people of certain generations tend to be more liberal or more conservative than other generations. But typically, as you get older, you become somewhat more conservative. Not remarkably, but somewhat more conservative. But right now, that's masked by the fact that a lot of the older people are people from the New Deal era, and therefore, they tend to be more liberal. That's a cohort effect, not an age effect. And I think we have to end, actually, don't we, Peter? And I'm sorry. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.